Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl on Sunday, but one of the commercials that, that has a lot of Christians talking um, talked about Jesus washing people's feet. And, uh, you know, I won't go into all the specifics. Jesus did wash people's feet. He washed people's feet who would betray him, uh, who would deny him. That, that is true. Um, it came up in our pastor's gathering this weekend, or this, this past Thursday. And uh, local pastors around the area got together, and uh, as we do monthly, and we, we talked about this commercial. And we, we all sort of felt that the, the jury is out, but there's a, a good deal of skepticism about this. You know, when Paul, Paul had two responses to people that were proclaiming a gospel sort of against him. He had two responses. One was in Philippians chapter 1 when he says, so what? Jesus is being preached. In Galatians 1, he says, let them be accursed. And, and, and so, the, you know, which of Paul's response, how would Paul respond to this commercial? Well, it depends on whether the gospel is being preached or a different gospel is being preached. And so you have to really kind of assess that. And is it the Jesus that's being preached or a different version of Jesus that's being preached? And I'll let you, well, I mean, no, that's cowardice. I'll tell you that, you know, if you go to their website, you will not find the gospel of Jesus Christ. You will not find a clear uh, presentation that, that, yes, Jesus washed sinners' feet and he called them to repentance. You will not find that on this website. And so in my opinion and the opinion of, of many of these pastors, uh, that commercial uh, maybe was trying to get a conversation started, but to funnel you back to the website, there ought to be a clear gospel presentation Right? I mean, you've got people talking about Jesus and come to the website, Super Bowl, biggest audience in the world, uh, give us the Jesus, the gospel. And I think that Paul would probably not be amused. Uh, and, and I'm not amused. But in response to that, another pastor put together a video that really should have been the Super Bowl commercial about Jesus. And I want to show you that for you now. Now, before we hit that, Jacob, I want to say that those that are watching online because of copyright rules, you're not going to get this uh, sound and you're not gonna get a full-on video, but you can go and search for He Saves Us commercial, and you can find that and watch it yourself, hopefully after the sermon this morning. Jacob, go ahead and play that, bud. Yeah. 
on Super Bowl Sunday. Such were some of you. There's no denying that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and Paul said, of whom I am the foremost. There's no room for judging. There's, this is not hating on, on, on people. This is saying, this is the gospel. Jesus Christ came, not just to wash feet, but to die for the sin of sinners and change them. Amen. Such were some of you. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to see some of that this morning in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Let's read that passage and pray and then get into it. Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For, God is the end, uh, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray. Jesus, we come as saved sinners or sinners in need of salvation, and you know. But Lord, we come into your presence and we praise your name. We exalt King Jesus. You are seated at the right hand of God. You rule and you reign over your church and you are coming again, and you will rule and reign over a new heaven and a new earth, and we eagerly wait for that. But Lord, you have left us with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to boldly proclaim that Jesus came to save sinners. Lord, would you give us the strength to do that, and the boldness and the courage, and help us, Lord, as we go to your word now. I pray that you would bless it, I pray that you prepare our hearts to receive it, and we would glorify you in responding to it in Jesus' name. Amen. So verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Who is them? His fellow kinsmen, according to the flesh, his fellow Jews. He desires that his fellow Jews would be saved. He was not hating on the Jews. He wasn't gloating in their destruction and his salvation. He didn't become bitter because these people uh, wronged him and accused him and mocked him. Instead, Paul's response to these people that stood opposed to him and ultimately uh, it, it, uh, contributed to, were complicit in his going in, in prison to Rome and ultimately being, we believe, beheaded. He, he didn't become bitter towards these people. Instead, he prayed for them and he desired their salvation. You know, it's, it's one thing to, generally speaking, want people to be saved, especially people that, that have wronged us, people that, that we might consider our enemies, people that would hurt us, people that if they had a chance would kill us. It is, it is one thing to, generally speaking, want their salvation, and it's another thing to sincerely pray to that end. And you know, Paul was simply modeling our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who on the cross prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And not only that, but Paul was there when Stephen was stoned to death. Luke records in, in Acts 
that Paul, then Saul, laid down his cloak in affirmation of Stephen's stoning, and he observed Stephen praying, Father, forgive them. So Paul is just doing what, what, what he has seen in Jesus, what he saw in the first martyr, Stephen, and he's setting an example for us. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray to what end? Oh, it's easy to pray for our enemies. Lord, would you, would you cause hailstone to fall on the heads of my enemies, those imprecatory psalm prayers? That's easy. You think that's what Jesus had in mind? Well, when John, and I, I believe it was uh, James and John, said, should we, call, should we call for hail to fall on them? He, he said, no. No. What, what does Jesus want us to pray for, our enemies and those who persecute us? For their salvation. I've heard it said that, that the kingdom of God is like this. The gospel is like this. The apostle Paul entered into the kingdom of God to the applause of those he sent there. Let me say it again. The apostle Paul entered the kingdom of God to the applause of those he sent there. And brothers and sisters, so will you if the Lord allows you to suffer for his sake in that way. Verse two says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You know, by Paul's own admission, he was a zealous Jew. He told the Philippian church that he once zealously persecuted the church. He was sincere in his convictions. His convictions were more than just talk. They led to action. He put himself in violent situations for his convictions. Now, he was sincere, but sincerely wrong. And that should be a warning for us. Something was lacking in his zeal, and that was knowledge. Paul says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. There's a knowledge that puffs up and a knowledge that builds up, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8. The knowledge that puffs up is a fleshly, carnal knowledge. It's intellect. It's, it's law-based. It's works-based. It's knowing up here what is right and what is wrong. It's knowing all the nuances of doctrine. But there's a different kind of knowledge. The Greek word is epignosis. The word for knowledge, like up here, is gnosis. And the word that Paul uses is epignosis. It's a different kind of knowledge. Epignosis comes from a saving relationship to God. Paul prayed for the Ephesians this way. He said that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. True knowledge comes when we know the truth. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Knowledge that brings us to God, the kind of knowledge that Paul says they were without, the knowledge that brings us to God comes by knowing Christ Jesus, and it is received by faith, not by mere intellect. There are a lot of Bible scholars. I, I was surprised. This is one of the most surprising things to me when I went to graduate school, was how many Bible scholars knew the Greek, knew the Hebrew, wrote the commentaries, and deny the Christ. Many Bible scholars 
know nothing of the truth. They, like Paul's kinsmen, have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They are sincere. They have conviction, even if they are sincerely wrong. It's a false zeal. The knowledge that Paul referred to is true knowledge of God and how to rightly relate to him. Now, Paul expounds upon what he means by zeal without knowledge in verse 3. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They knew what Moses said, Woe, uh, excuse me, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? They knew that up here. They knew of this wonderful, awesome, majestic, perfectly holy God. Yet remarkably, they found a way to bring his holiness, bring his righteousness down a notch or two, and elevate their own so that the two should meet somewhere in the middle. They thought that they could attain the righteousness of God because they were ignorant of the standard. They imagined that they could follow a few laws, perform a few rituals, abstain from a few vices, and make amends when they failed and call it a day. And somehow, they would be able to attain to the righteousness of this perfectly holy God. I was reading in R.C. Sproul's, uh, not in, a, in, a, in a table talk devotional yesterday, talking about total depravity. The idea of total depravity is not that 100% of your acts and motives and words and deeds is sinful. That's not what we're saying. It's not that 100% of, of what you do think and say is wrong. It's that not 100% of what you do say and, and think is right. Who can deny that? And yet God's standard is 100% perfection. And remarkably, the Jews believed that they could attain the righteousness of God. They were, in, they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of the fact that God's righteousness is perfect. Listen, this is, why, this is what tripped them up when Jesus came. Jesus is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense for these people because he says things like this in Matthew chapter five. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Wait a second. Hold up, Jesus. You're saying, you, are, you, are, you are likening murder and anger. And he goes, yeah, that's exactly what I'm, I'm, I'm saying. It's a heart motive and you're focused on the letter and the Lord is focused on the heart. The standard is so much higher than you could possibly imagine. He does the same thing with adultery and lust. Man, think about that for a second. I mean, do you really wrestle with that? If you, if you doubt your sinful nature, Ask yourself, have you ever lusted after another woman? Have you ever harbored anger in your heart towards another person? 
Who could possibly say no to that? But see, that's what Jesus does. He comes in and he, and he, and he trips us in our pride. He, he, he chops us off at the knees. People that think they can stand on their own merit. Yeah, I've never committed adultery. Yes, I've never murdered. And Jesus goes, you've been angry. You've lusted. You're liable to judgment. Now, Paul says they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. I doubt that Paul meant here that they were ignorant in the sense, in the sense that they simply did not know. They knew. They, especially the Pharisees were experts in the law. They knew intellectually. Most likely, like many people today, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. Can we acknowledge that? Can, can, can we, when we talk about the Pharisees, when we talk about religious people, when we talk about people who, 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 who think they stand on their own merit, can we acknowledge there's nothing new under the sun? If it was a problem 2,000 years ago, it's a problem today? All right, so, so like people who grow up in the church today and they hear of the perfect righteousness of God, they hate it. It's, it's not that they aren't aware of it, it's that they hate it. So it's not that they are ignorant in the sense they don't know it, they're ignorant in the sense that they ignore it. They, they don't care about it, they, they hate it. A perfectly righteous God demands perfect righteousness. And you and I simply cannot attain perfection. So let me bring him down a few notches and let me elevate myself. You know, I think that, I, I think that the term that we use today is virtue signaling. I think that Pharisees were chief Virtue signalers. I, I think that when we read of they tried to establish their own righteousness, it would be like us saying they virtue signaled hard. Look, the, the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, as Jesus summarizes the culture of the Pharisees, the religious elite, he says in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee says, Thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. That is the essence of virtue signaling. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. Oh, we saw this over and over again over the last four years. Critical race theory, masking in COVID, the vaccine, who you voted for. Every one of these was a virtue signal, whether you masked or didn't mask whether you got the vaccine or you didn't vaccine, whether you voted for Trump or you voted for Clinton or what, uh, who, what uh, Biden. <laughs> Whatever it was, what was a badge of honor and a virtue signal. Thank you that I'm not like those other people. Let me establish my own righteousness. And that's why we live in a cancel culture. Because we say, you know what, God, I am so thankful that I would never do that. I would never say that, and it's a race to cancel everybody because we would never do it like that. We would never say that because we want to establish our own righteousness. And that's one of the big problems that I have with this commercial. If you, if you start to look at the images 
Most of these images portray this oppressor-oppressed narrative. And most of these images, especially the abortion one, you, you have these people that are, are standing outside of an abortion clinic with signs, and, and most people that stand outside of an abortion clinic are saying, we're praying for you. Please do not kill your baby. We are offering support. There's another way. They are weeping over the loss of these innocent children's lives. But what is being portrayed in that commercial is that the virtuous one is not saying there's another way, but rather washing the feet. Now look, is offering to adopt your baby not washing someone's feet? Is saying there is help for you and you can avoid the mental agony post-abortion through resource centers, through help of the church, you can avoid this? Is that not washing people's feet? Is telling people the truth about Jesus and about their sin not washing people's feet? But we live in a virtue signaling culture and everyone is quick to cancel because we want to establish our own righteousness. They're ignorant of the standard. They're ignorant of the standard. The standard of God is perfect. And they thought, well, if we could just do a few things right, and do some more things to make up for what we did wrong, then we would be righteous, we would be virtuous. There's nothing new under the sun. We are seeing that played out every day of our lives. That's the basis of critical race theory, diversity, equity, inclusion, Black Lives Matter. All of this that we've lived through for the last four years was establishing our own righteousness. Let's make amends for perceived wrongdoings. Now, have we got things wrong? 100%. What's the answer? Repent. Repent. Are there still racists? Yes. Do we have a racist past? Yes. Repent. We don't make up for. We don't atone for. Now, everyone loves a good reason to boast. That's why we do it. it. Makes us feel good. We love a good reason to boast. We love to feel good about ourselves, and the gospel makes supposedly good people feel bad about themselves as long as they're committed to establishing their own righteousness. Because as long as we're committed to standing on our own merit, the gospel is offensive. That's what Paul says, the gospel is offensive. You don't wanna offend anybody, then, then you're in the wrong place. You, you have followed the wrong message because the gospel is offensive to people that are seeking to establish their own righteousness. The Jews of Jesus' day, the most devout religious people, put him on the cross for the gospel. And you think you're not going to offend anybody by telling them that they need to repent of their sin? You're delusional. But you know that. I'm preaching to the choir. Listen, the gospel tells us that we are sinners and that we need a savior. Romans 3, 21, 25 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see the self-righteous stumble over the part that says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. If that's true, then it means I'm not really a good person. If that's true, then my sense of virtue is baseless and prideful. If that's true, it means that I come before God as a beggar and that hurts my ego. If the gospel is true, I have nothing to give Jesus but my sin. And that hurts someone who thinks they're standing on their own merit. Robert Montz reminds us the only thing God requires of people is that they not persist in trying to earn what they can only receive as a totally free gift. The problem is that pride stands in the way of receiving God's gift. Deeply ingrained in people's hostility is people, excuse me, deeply ingrained in people's hostility to divine grace is a proud and stubborn self-reliance that would rather suffer loss than be deprived of an occasion for boasting. People would rather suffer the loss of eternal life than be deprived of an occasion to boast in their own righteousness. Instead of seeking to establish their own righteousness by works of obedience, they should have recognized their wicked hearts and they should have sought the righteousness of Christ. That's what Paul says in verse four. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, a couple things that we have to wrestle with here is Paul saying that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness as in he's the goal of the law? Or is Christ the end of the law as in the fulfillment of the law? Well, Christ being the point of the law or the the goal of the law, that resonates because Paul says, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Daniel Doriani says this, the law labels human sin and its punishment. This drives us to see our guilt and long for Jesus, the Savior, who removes sin's guilt, punishment, and burden. In other words, the knowledge of sin ought to drive people to their knees before Jesus in repentance, seeking mercy, just as that fictional tax collector did in that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector who said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. At the same time that Christ is the fulfillment of the law for righteousness, that resonates Because Jesus lived a perfect life, he satisfied the perfect law, and he was put forward as the final and perfect propitiation, the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin. And so for these reasons, I don't believe that it's either or. I think that Paul had both in mind. Jesus is both the goal or the point of the law and the fulfillment of the law. In other words, he did for us what because of the law, we know we could never do for ourselves. This is why the righteousness of God is given to everyone who believes. You see, the law was never 
going to save anyone. It was meant to show us the perfect standard of God and cause us to believe in Jesus and to trust in God's plan of redemption. That was the point of the law. And because of our sin nature, because we could not live up to God's perfect standard, Jesus came to fulfill the law on our behalf and to impute to us his righteousness, and we receive that by faith. No one is saved by works, ever. We are saved by, f- by faith, by grace. Everyone who comes to an end of themselves and see, this, this is where it falls short. This is, where, this is where a half a gospel is no gospel at all. You see, this is why it's, it's, it's worth local pastors talking about this commercial because a half gospel is no gospel. You must come to an end of yourself for you to recognize that you need Jesus and to trust in him and him alone for salvation. Everyone who comes to an end of themselves and recognizes their inability to attain righteousness of God, to establish their own virtue, you can't virtue signal enough to be righteous in God's sight. And and instead, everyone who sees in Christ the all-sufficient Savior, all-sufficient Savior, Jesus is all you need to be made right with God. It's not Jesus plus this. There's no Jesus plus reckoning for your own sin, atoning for your own sin. It's Jesus. That's it. Give them Jesus. That's what we need to be saved. And everyone who gets to that place attains the righteousness of God. We admit that we are unrighteous and we embrace Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, as we close here, I've got a few few minutes, about 15 minutes, so don't get your hopes up, but about 15, <laughs> maybe, maybe 10. We'll, go, we'll try to do 10. Two things I want to close with, two points of application that come from this, from this passage. Number one, zeal without knowledge. Zeal without knowledge. I shared this last Wednesday in our study through Philippians that people love our badges of honor. Give me a badge of honor. Let me put something on my car, on my chest, on my bumper sticker, I mean, on my bumper of my car, give me something that I can boast in. My child is an honor, st- I'm just kidding. You can, bo- that's fine, no problem. But look, we, we love to boast. We love to boast. We love something that says to us and to the rest of the world, I'm more virtuous than the person next to me. We cling to things that cause us to look good and we ignore the things that cause us to look bad. That's that being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They ignored the things that made them look bad. They clung to the things that made them look good. Things they could attain, man, it was out front and center. They love to pray lengthy prayers, Jesus said. 
They love to stand out front. They love for their tassels to be long. They love for people to look at them. Look at my virtue. See that I am virtuous. And we ignore things that cause us to look bad. Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined this phrase, there's a germ hostile to the church. It is zeal without knowledge. There's a germ hostile to the church. It is zeal without knowledge. The church is a great place for folks to do all sorts of good things. We love, we love virtue. We love to serve. We love to worship. We love to read. We ought to do all of these things. We, we create space for people to be sacrificial, to grow in their faith and knowledge of Christ, to, to study the word. We encourage that you would open your Bible and read it and know it. We encourage you to give sacrificially. We encourage you to serve sacrificially. We encourage you to endure suffering for the sake of Christ. We encourage these virtues. And yet divorced from the kind of knowledge that Paul refers to in verse two, an enlightening, saving, spiritual kind of knowledge of God and his righteousness, all of these things actually work against the gospel. Zeal without knowledge works against the gospel because it's puffing you up. It's inflating your ego. It's a badge of honor. Now, again, none of those things that I mentioned are wrong. All of these are commanded in Scripture. It's a classic root versus fruit. Have you heard that illustration? What is the root and what is the fruit? Your virtue is not the root of your salvation. It's not the cause of your salvation. It is the fruit of your salvation. What is the root of your salvation? Faith in Jesus Christ. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, what you should expect is fruit on the limbs. But no one has ever gotten very far when they put the cart of virtue in front of the horse of grace. Some things to ask yourself, do I do this, whatever this is, Bible study, connect group, triad, sacrificial giving, coming to worship, worshiping itself, going on missions, making a meal for someone. Do I do this thing because I seek to honor the Lord and because I am eternally grateful for what he has done for me on the cross? Does this virtue arise from the work of the Holy Spirit in me, transforming me, convicting me? Am I hungry for the word of God because I want to know him more? I want to be closer. I want to understand this God that I worship, and I want to walk more closely with Jesus. Or is this thing that I do an attempt to prove that I am a virtuous person? Do I study the word of God because I want to know more than someone else? I, I want to be able to win a debate. 
I want to be able to, 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 uh, to, to humble brag. I want to win the Bible trivia. This is a heart issue. You see, that, 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 that's what caused people to stumble over Jesus. Because Jesus says, don't murder and don't hate in your heart. It's a heart issue. And heart issues are infinitely more difficult to wrestle with than the physical act. Praise the Lord, you haven't murdered anybody. And if you have, and you've done your time, and you've been forgiven, praise the Lord. But, but I haven't murdered anybody. But have you been angry at somebody? Well, that doesn't count. Yes, it counts. It's a heart issue. These, these questions require us to humble ourselves before the Lord and, and to say with David in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Not look at my life, Lord. That's what the Pharisee said. Look at my life. That's what the rich young ruler said. I, I give to everybody. I tithe. I've kept all the law. Look, look, at my, look at my acts. And Jesus goes, but in your heart, you're materialistic. So sell everything and give to the poor. And he walks away and Jesus doesn't chase him. Search me, O God, and know my heart and see if there be any grievous way in me. Listen, if the the zealous Jews of Jesus' day put him on the cross because he exposed their heart motives, perhaps you and I ought to be taking a much harder look at our hearts to ensure that our zeal is not without knowledge. The big question for you is do you have Jesus or do you have religion? Do you have the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ and everything that comes out of your life, your growth, your sacrifice, your faithfulness is all a fruit of the Holy Spirit working in you or are you a virtue signaling self-righteous person? It's a heart issue and only you and God knows that. And I'm not judging anybody. I'm just asking you to ask that question, right? Number two, Let's talk about missional zeal. Do you truly desire in your heart that those who are far from God would be saved? I'll ask it one more time. Do you truly desire in your heart that those who are lost will be saved? Next question is, do you intercede for them? Do you sincerely pray to that end? Well, what about when those people have hurt you? or when those people would like to hurt you, or or when those people would like to kill you? Do you pray for their salvation? How about people who are so totally entrenched in wickedness that you can't possibly envision them ever coming to saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you pray for them? You know, it's not for us to discern who is elect and who is not. That's not our job. It's not our job to make a judgment of who gets the gospel and who doesn't. And I've been guilty just like the next guy, looking at somebody and saying, I'm not gonna gonna share the gospel with them. Look at them. They're intimidating. No way I'm gonna be able to to bring the, the hope of Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive me for that. Because if Jesus could save a sinner like me, he can save any man on the planet and woman. 
Notice it right smack in the middle of, of Paul defending the, elect, the election, the doctrine of election here in chapters 9 and 10. Right smack in the middle, he speaks of how he desires people's salvation. He wants their salvation and he prays for it. It is antithetical to scripture to take the posture of fatalism or apathy. And these are, these, are, these are thoughts that some Christians can have, especially if you believe, like I do, in the doctrine of election. You can take a fatalist view or an apathetic view. Fatalism says, well, these people don't seem all that interested in God, in the gospel. They're living like demons. They're making awful choices. They obviously must not be elect. Why bother sharing the gospel with them? Here's what I want you to do with that thought. I want you to slay it. I want you to kill it. I want you to take it out behind your barn and shoot it in the head, dead. I want you to kill the idea that somehow someone else that looks like they can't come to know Christ is not worthy of receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look, such were some of you. Such were some of you. Why do people act lost? Because they're lost. Why do people act dead in sin? Because they're dead in sin. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Fatalism says, you know what? They're not worth going to. They would never receive the gospel. Our job is to preach the gospel, to teach the gospel, to speak the gospel. The gospel is a message you can live in light of the gospel, but the, mess, the gospel is a message that must be spoken. So you speak the gospel to whoever, whoever he gives you opportunity, and you trust him with the results. Now, another way to err is the error of apathy. You know, someone that says, well, God is sovereign, and therefore he's going to do the work, and so why bother? I'm just going to trust the Lord to bring in the harvest to me. This is a strong position among those who believe in the uh, sovereignty of God in election. Well, I'll just wait for him to bring the harvest in. I don't need to go out. For Paul, it was not enough for him to rest on God's sovereignty. His doctrine of election did not reduce in any way his understanding of human responsibility. It's a tension that he lives in and that we live in. God is sovereign, man is responsible. God's the one that can save sinners, and yet God sends man out to other people with a message of repent and believe the gospel. He didn't sit back on his laurels. Paul didn't sit back on his laurels and hope that the harvest would simply be brought in. No, he understood the imperative of Jesus. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the God of the harvest to send out more workers. God is sovereign. We are responsible. Paul was not content with his holy huddle, and neither should we be. We have a mission, and we are missionaries. The Lord has invited us to participate with him in the most important work in the world, taking the gospel across the street and around the world. Now, that's what you're going to see on this main wall right here in our fireside room, right on the other side of this wall, in 200 or 300 point font written right there, taking the gospel across the street and around the world. That is what drives 
Wildwood Church. That's our vision. In his sovereignty, God has established that no person can be saved unless they respond in faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could he have saved people another way? He's sovereign. He can do it however he wants. And yet in his sovereignty, he ordained that salvation comes because a person hears the gospel and responds to the gospel. And no one can respond to a gospel that they have not heard. The gospel is a message of salvation from sin based entirely upon the righteousness of Christ imputed to you by faith. And you and I have the sacred task and the delightful duty of participating, of being his messengers, his ambassadors, and yes, his missionaries, taking the gospel across the street and around the world to people who hate us, to people who mock us, to people who would hurt us, and yes, to people who would kill us. For Paul says in Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Is it your desire that the unbelieving world would be saved, even if it means that you suffer for the sake of Christ? I want you to think of it like this. I want to change your perspective about how you think about unbelieving people around the world. When unbelievers are saved, they become your brother and sister in Christ. When I baptized the Johns right here, I said, I baptize you, my brother. I baptize you, my sister. In second service, I'm going to baptize my daughter. And I'm not going to say, I baptize you, my daughter, in the name of Christ. I'm going to say, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of Jesus Christ. When an unbeliever is saved, they become your brother and sister in Christ. Those that will worship with you for all of eternity and will celebrate this glorious gospel. And some of them are yet to be saved. And some of them will be saved because you, brother and sister, preach the gospel to them does that consume you does that fire you up does that fill you up with purpose for life there are brothers and sisters who have yet to come into the family and they will do so because you are faithful and bold in Jesus name and you will give them the full gospel, not just that Jesus gets us, not just that Jesus loves us, but that Jesus saves us. About to take this sweater off. <laughs> Listen, do you, do, do you believe this? I find myself asking that question over and over in these, in these sermons. Do you believe this? Because you can know it intellectually, but do you believe it? Do you believe it? Finally, a word to those who continue to seek to establish their own righteousness. You're a virtue signaler. You don't mean to be, but, but, but that's, that you need that to feel virtuous. You are a virtue signal. You're seeking to establish your own righteousness. May I invite you to cease, to stop. May I invite you to rest in Christ. May I invite you to take up the yoke of Christ. His burden is easy, his yoke is light because Christ has finished the work of righteousness for you. 
May I invite you to humble yourself before the Lord and lean no longer upon your own virtue, your own sense of goodness, and to instead trust wholeheartedly in his. You know, we live in a world enamored by virtue signaling, nothing new under the sun. People have always hated a God who would tell them that their way of living was wrong. They've always despised a God who would look upon their life and say it's not good enough. It doesn't measure up. Your efforts are not enough. And that vein of pride runs deep into our hearts. And so I invite you to ask the Lord to search yours and to pluck it out so that you can know what it means to live in freedom, to know the truth, because the truth will set you free. Amen? And that's why we do communion. That's why the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper as a constant reminder because Jesus knew the heart of man. He knew that we, that we fail to remember, that we, that, we, that we forget, and we needed a constant reminder, and communion is that reminder that Jesus Christ bled for you, that his body was broken on the cross for you, that without him you have nothing to offer to God, but in him you are graciously received and embraced as a child of the everlasting, eternal, holy God, our Father. As we invite the worship team to come back, this is a time of reflection, a time for you to pause and say, Lord, do I have Jesus or do I have religion? Am I, like the Pharisees, am I, am I a chief virtue signaler? Is all of this vanity, is all of this pride, is that what this is? Lord, forgive me. I trust in you for righteousness. This is your time to pray. Why don't we stay seated? Why don't we let the worship team just sing over? And you just pray and search your heart. Ask the Lord, search my heart, O God, and see if there be any grievous way in me. Amen? Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040 if you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.